Welcome to Law Enforcement Today, the podcast. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. I'm a radio broadcaster and also retired Baltimore police sergeant. In every Law Enforcement Today podcast, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about issues that affect law enforcement officers, both active and retired, their families, friends, and supporters. We'll also be discussing incidents in the news from the perspective of those in law enforcement. Be sure to check out our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, and please take the time to like and follow us on Facebook. Search for Law Enforcement Today. This episode of Law Enforcement Today brought to you by Galls.com. We're thrilled to have them on board, sponsoring episodes of our podcast and radio show, sponsoring our app, lots Everything, of great things. Jay. And you know me, my big feeling is is support those who support law enforcement. And Gauls has stepped up to the plate. They're supporting us, and we need to support them. And they've been in business for 50 years. 50 years serving first responders and law enforcement community. They're industry leaders. They've got a huge online catalog, everything you could ever want. You know, you always uh, hear about the word Gauls. Uh, we spoke about this years ago. I was ordering from them at a catalog and didn't even know who they are. And now we know who they are. And again, like you said, 50 years in business. Goals.com. Check them out. Their catalog is spectacular. Everything from like a retired guy like me to active guy like Robert. Men, women, they've got everything you could ever need between tactical gear, clothing, footwear, badges, handcuff keys. They've got everything. Also, be sure to check them out on Facebook and Instagram. In the studio in West Palm Beach with Robert Greenberg himself. Here in present. Ready, ready for duty, sir. Yeah. And, and this guest we have today is someone I'm very excited to have on the show because we've been talking for a while that one aspect of our show that we haven't been addressing as much as we'd like is the point of view of spouses of officers and what they go through, especially when really, really bad stuff happens. And joining us from Maryland, from the Baltimore area, from my old stomping grounds, Kim Abato Diachilla. Kim, how are you? Um, very well, Jay. How are you? Good, good. I'm so glad you agreed to do this. I, I got to let people know that I know you. I've known you since October of 1989, and you'll explain why a little bit later on. And yes. um, what happened was when I was in Baltimore Police Department, the way it works there, when you get promoted, like from a police officer to sergeant, they send you to another district. And I was sent to Central District. And in that district, I was Sector 3, and some great guys and, and women in that 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 squad I had a man named William Martin we called him Billy and he was my chief primary OIC officer in charge so when I was off it was usually Billy and then another guy or if I was acting as lieutenant because lieutenant was off it was usually him that'd be filling his OIC because he's a great cop he's very level-headed he knew how to manage all the good stuff all the things you look for uh, so that was how I got to know Billy and it was a, a great experience and then I transferred back to Northwest. A couple months later, got some really, really bad news. So, Kim, you know what we're talking about. Yes, I do. And that was October 10th, 1989, if my memory is correct. Correct. Take us back to that day. What was it like? What was your day like? Was it normal? Uh, it was a very normal day. I had gone, to, Billy was on midnight shift, and I had gone to work um, and came home, and we spent the evening as a family having dinner, Billy and my then three-year-old son, Patrick, and myself, and we hung out, had dinner, watched a little TV, and then Billy left for work probably about 
he liked to get in early, so he usually left around 9.30 or 10. And I put Patrick to bed and went to sleep. And then what happened? What was the first indication that something was very, very wrong? The next thing I knew, there was very loud knocking on my door. We didn't have a doorbell, and so there was, we had a door knocker, so there was loud knocking, and I went downstairs and opened the door and was surprised to see my brother-in-law, Billy's brother, um, who was at that time a state trooper, and his wife standing at my door with panic-stricken looks on their faces, and the first thing that came out of my brother-in-law, Howdy is his name, his mouth was, Billy's been shot, I need to get you to the hospital. He was wise enough, or they were wise enough, to bring his wife, Sue, um, because obviously I had a sleeping three-year-old and no one else at home. So Sue's job was to stay with Patrick while he was sleeping so that I could go immediately to the hospital with Howdy. And you went to, was it uh, Maryland Shock Trauma, or was it Shock Hopkins? Trauma. And what was the scene like when you got there? It was, um, it was actually very surreal. I, I knew, well, the, the, the oddest part of the, the drive there was Howdy was in an unmarked state police car because I think he was working covert operations or something at the time. And we're driving around the Baltimore Beltway, probably close to 100 miles an hour. And lo and behold, we got pulled over. I did another, not know that. You got pulled over for yes. speeding in a unmarked state police car. I think, and I think, I think it was a, it was a state trooper that, that actually pulled us over. Um, so he came to the window and Howdy rolled down the window and said, you know, I'm Trooper Martin. Um, I'm on my way to shock trauma. And of course it had been broadcast unbeknownst to me on everybody's radio. And the trooper knew immediately what he was talking about. And he took us in, he gave us an escort into the hospital. So that was just that was just an odd moment in that whole experience. But we got to the hospital and I walked in and I the best way I can describe it now is it was almost like a parting of the seas. I knew we were in trouble. I knew that something bad had happened when one of the guys Billy worked with was standing at the entrance to the hospital sobbing. And then I walked into the hallway or I was escorted into the hospital through this hallway, and the entire departmental command staff was there. And as soon as I walked through, they, it was as though they pushed themselves back against the walls. They couldn't, it was just a strange, surreal kind of thing. Nobody could make eye contact with me, and then they, they took me into, the doctors took me into a room, sat me down and explained to me that Billy had been shot and had subsequently died. I don't know what to say about that. I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know that there's much you can say to tell you the truth, Jay. It's been it all was, these uh, years, and I still, I still get emotional. Yeah, it was, um, it was a very difficult moment. For me, besides the fact that I was scared to death because I knew as soon as I got out of the car and saw the officer crying that I was in big trouble. Mm-hmm. And so besides being scared for myself and for my own life and my son with whatever it was that they were about to tell me, I saw the looks on these faces and I thought, this is just, this is going to be unbearable. And it was just, it was a horrible experience. 
I think unbearable is a good choice of words. It it was, uh, I remember getting the news. I was working and I I went down to your house. And I I tell Robert, I've talked to other guests and we talk about when the worst thing happens that we know we're supposed to show up but no one has any idea what to say. We know what the protocols are to the Department of Regulations, but on a one-to-one basis, you're like, "I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't even know how to talk to you. Well, that was evident when you showed up at the hospital. And cl- clearly, it's a universal experience. Yeah. I mean, because there, it was very difficult, even for those who, because of protocol, were those who were required to to talk to me. It was very difficult for them, um, and I knew instantly how hard it was. This is this was just a difficult situation all around. The docs for the doctors and nurses. And for for the officers that were there, for the command staff members that were there, I mean, it was just it was very difficult. Any suggestions uh, where maybe somebody could have done something that would have helped you, or is it is what it is, and there's really no way to a sugarcoat uh, an experience like this, or or lighten the effects uh, to a loved one? I I I don't think there is any anything other other that could have been done it's just an experience that you can't prepare for everybody does the best they can and they everybody deals with it differently the nurses in the hospital were great you know it's funny because i got not funny but i was so nervous my mouth dried up which i guess is a is a normal reaction to stress and i i couldn't even talk my mouth was so dry so they immediately offered me a glass of water, and one of the nurses said to me, can I give you something to calm you down? And I said, no, 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 I'm fine, because I knew I needed to have my wits about me at that point. So they definitely, you know, they try, but it's it's just, it's, it's a common reaction, and I don't know that there's anything that could ever change it. It's a very awkward situation uh, for myself to be in, um, been in it a few times, and and I don't know if that if I pin myself up against the wall, but I, I really feel awkward because you don't know what to say. I mean, what do you say? What can you say? What can you do? There's nothing that you can say or you can do that can undo this horrific event. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing that you can say or do. And so uh, for, from my perspective, I understood that. You know, I, I as difficult and as, as awkward as it all was, I understood how horrible it was not only for me but for everybody that was there did you and billy have conversations beforehand if this ever happened if the worst case ever happened uh, you know we had the same we had the conversations that that i think every police officer has with his or her spouse and a lot of it is sort of you know joking banter about you know if i'm ever sitting in the house and i have a heart attack put me in my uniform and drive me to my district and throw me out of the car. (laughs) You know, I mean, so we had had those kinds of conversations, but other than that, I don't think anything extraordinary. He used to say though, what was interesting, um, I realized afterwards, what he, he used to tell me that he was going to die in a blaze of glory. Really? And I used to, yes. And I used to think he was, when they're like a rock song, yeah. about a blaze of glory or something. And I used to think, oh, this is, you know, this is one of his goofy references or something. But in retrospect, I would think about that for years and say, God, maybe he, you know, maybe he knew something. I don't know. Well, he did have a, 
a habit every now and then of singing to us when we were working on the midnight shift in particular. <laughs> and there was one I do remember. There was a comedy skit. I think it was Saturday Night Live that it was a Cindy Lauper song about driving in my car but doing it in the Elmer Fudd voice, and he would do that perfectly. So I know, I'm not I surprised that there is some sort of song reference because he he'd whip those things out at you at the most unexpected times, like being at a a bad scene of a DOA, and all of a sudden. Billy might start singing very quietly, of course. You know, uh, that's the sort of stuff we did. So, I'm well, not, that was his I'm sense not... of humor. I, I totally, I mean, that's how he kept himself sane. Don't, uh, you know, I everybody on the job that. has their own way yes. of doing it. Yes. Kim, did you date or meet your husband prior to him getting into law enforcement, or was he already a Baltimore he, cop? My first husband, no, he was already a Baltimore City cop when I met him. What did you think about that? Did you have any preconceived notions? Like, did that stop you from uh, pursuing a relationship with him? No, I no, because I just, I, I don't know. I guess I just always looked at it as being a job. I just always had faith, I suppose, that what is meant to be will be. And I never, ever dwelled on the possibility that something terrible could happen. I understand. Now, the area where, where Billy worked and I worked at that time is what they call a Sandstown, Winchester area of Baltimore, where they've had the riots in the last couple of years, and it's been listed as one of the most dangerous areas, not just in Baltimore, but in the United States. I think it's right. Lawrence in Pennsylvania is probably the, the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the United States for violence. That night, it was a regular routine call for service, wasn't it? It was, I think, um, it, as I understand it, it, it was actually, there had been an initial call for kids smoking pot. And it was in the hallway. It was a garden-style apartment complex. So you had steps up and then a landing and then steps behind, you know, right. typical garden-style. And there had been one call for kids smoking pot in the hallway and... Uh, somebody must have answered the call and, and then left without resolving. And I think this must have been like the second or third time that call had come out. And this one particular time, Billy answered the call and approached the building. I, he, it's hard for me to really remember, and so much of it is so vague, even though I've heard so much of it. But he was going up the first set of steps and met one of the supposed kids, I guess the alleged kids that was doing drugs, went to get his information, stopped him on the landing, went to get his information, and then from behind him on the next landing above was the suspect who then basically ambushed him, shot him from behind. He was maybe 10 steps up behind him. He never knew what was coming. He never reached for his gun, Just and it went in the back of his head the back of his neck and that was it and it was a very typical call for that area yep. and it was not yep. uncommon you know you wouldn't expect violence in a situation like that no no one would i wouldn't have uh you know it's funny because afterwards somebody said to me several people actually commented that they didn't understand why he didn't what they called dupe the call and you could probably explain that better than i could jay but basically it was kind of like blowing it off mm-hmm. Because it had been called in before, and it was such a typical nothing call. Right. And I can tell you the reason why. The reason why is because 
Billy, your husband, and I had these conversations. He cared deeply about the quality of service he rendered to the people in the community. And right. just about everybody in the squad did. I'm not saying everybody did, but he and a few other guys, they were very, very serious about it. And they, they said, look, this is a bad neighborhood, a lot of crime, people don't deserve to live like this, you know, and we're here to try to make a difference. And that's the reason why. That's right. exactly the reason why he went and said, hey, I could have blown it off. I could have said, hey, it's unfounded, nothing going on, because it's been the third call for it. But that's not, that wasn't his style. Well, and that was my experience with that community afterwards. I, I had a lot of experience with the people that lived there. They reached out to me in a huge way. And there were so many wonderful people living in that community that were basically being held hostage you know, by this group of, of whomever bad guys. And I felt sorry for them. And I guess he must have too at some point. So let's go to the next scenario. You, you get to the hospital, the horrendous right. news. Uh, the, the truth is got to be crushing. And like you said, the fear of what do I do? How do I continue on? I, I don't ever think that I would doubt that you would think you couldn't do it. I didn't never thought that about you. But all of a sudden, raising a child, blah, 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 my husband's gone, and then the daunting task of the departmental funeral. What oh. was that like? Um, it is, it's so many different things. Um, on the one hand, it is comforting because there's so much support. On the other hand, it's, it's traumatizing because you're grieving publicly. I don't know how it is now. I don't think it's as horrific or or at least in Baltimore. But in those days, we're talking almost 30 years ago, I couldn't leave my house without press standing down the street. And, I mean, you're just, it's, it's a very public time experience at a very bad time. One of the things that you and I talked about is when I went down to your house, I don't think it was that night, I think it was the next day. I went to your house and uh, granted, I wasn't working with Billy Squad at that time. I introduced myself. You said, come on in. And I felt, as we said before, I had no idea what to do or say. You actually helped me heal from that more than anything I could have said or done. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I really do because I, as I think we had talked about before, I knew... And I don't know how I, I don't know if it was instinctive or it was a blessing from God or whatever, but I knew that this was bigger than me at this point and that all of the pain was, that I was suffering could wait until we got through this very difficult time for the, for the men and women of the Baltimore City Police Department who were grieving immensely and needed me to keep it together for them. I don't know if that sounds strange, no, but to me, it was such a natural response. Yeah, I'm still blown away by it because it's, it's, people talk about things like survivor's guilt, and for other officers, it's like, well, if I should have been there, and for me personally, it was like, I, I left those guys and went to another district for, for right. reasons you understand that I won't go into now, but... So I felt like I abandoned them. Then you get the crazy thinking, well, if I hadn't abandoned them, if I'd been there, that wouldn't have happened. You know? And it's this crazy game that your mind plays that took an incredibly long period of time 
to overcome. So the people that the officers that were working there, I can only imagine what the guys and girls that he worked with for years went through. And now I can see what you say about they needed help with their healing. I knew that the responsibility to to reach out and to show them how to grieve was mine because they were going to take the lead from me. And if I lost it unmercifully or was out of control, then how, how they wouldn't, it would have been horrible for them. So I knew instinctively that I had to, I had to show them that I was going to be okay. That despite everything that terrible that had happened, Patrick, my son and I were going to be okay. And I, I just felt like that's what they needed. I needed them to know that. And it, it seemed to work, I, I guess. So I've been told. How old was Patrick at the time? He had turned, it was October, and he had turned three in June. So he was just a little guy. Yeah, I do remember he was a, a tiny little guy back then. And I think you guys had a great big, huge dog at the house. Was it like English Mastiff or something like that? Um, his parents did. That's his what parents had the big, we had a little Yorkie. He had, <laughs> his parents had a big, had a big English Mastiff. Good memory, though, Jay. Yeah, That's great. It's funny what, what your mind hangs on to. It, other things that it are is, insignificant, it's like, I'll never forget this. And right. other things I'm going, I don't remember. I, it's it's but just it has your been, mind protecting you in some way, I think, sometimes, you know? It's it, been almost 30 years, and I do remember the funeral. I do yeah. remember bits of it. I don't remember all of it because it was such a traumatic, well, Jay, gut-wrenching you know, experience. In your defense, you were also a pallbearer. Yeah. I asked you to be, they came to me and said, you know, we need, I don't know if it was six or eight people. They asked me to choose the pallbearers. And I picked those people who, in the department, who had been the most, who had had, I guess, who he was the closest to and had the greatest influence on his life, on the job. And you were one of the people I, I picked. It's, uh, you have to talk now, Robert, because I can't a, talk. That's a pretty <laughs> distinguishing honor to, to be bestowed upon you, Jay. Kim, after going through all this, when did you have me time to a- basically deal with the gut-wrenching feeling that your husband was killed in the line of duty? It, after all the hoopla, after the funeral, how long did it take you where it just hit you? Or... Do you walk through life like I do sometimes when a loved one passed, just like in this cloud? You, you do that, yes. You do that for a while. I uh, The week of the funeral, and it truly was almost a week, was just an adrenaline rush of enormous magnitude. No, there was no eating. I mean, it was just it, for anybody, I guess, but that was involved, but specifically for me. And the day after the funeral, I... Um, and everybody had gone home, and I, I realized that this is it. I need to start my life over again. So it was really the day after that I, that I knew that things were different. At that point, it was Patrick and I all alone once again in our house. And, you know, I, we, had to, we had to go forward. I was the only thing that little boy had left. Were you, um, and, were you scared? What was your, your actual emotions when you sat down to realize that fact? I tend to be, Robert, an extremely determined woman, and there was some fear, I'm sure, can I, can I do this alone? 
but I also knew that I that I would. I had no choice. You know, that, that little three-year-old darling little boy was dependent on me to provide him with the life that his father and I had always intended him to have. And so I, you know, I, I had to do what I had to do. And it was scary. And it took me, oh, God, it took me weeks to finally be able to do normal things. I, I remember the first time I drove myself to the grocery store, like I had hundreds of times before Billy died. And I got into the grocery store and I was panic stricken. You know, those are the kind of things that you go through. Um, and it takes a while. It takes the first year, I would say, is a year of great difficulty. After that, after you've done the first things one time, the first Christmas, the first birthday, the first, you know, Easter, it becomes a little more bearable. But the first year was just atrocious. How long after did the people stop coming by and the department start calling to see if you need anything? How long did that go on? And how did that have any reflection on how you dealt with things? Well, you know, to be to be honest with you, I it got to be maybe a month, six weeks after the funeral when I really was ready for people to stop coming. Although they were wonderful, people bring me food, people brought Patrick things. I, I needed us to get back to normal. I needed us to have a normal daily schedule routine. So I guess it was maybe I started to say to people, you know, we're really okay. Did you we're go okay. to, I'm sorry, did you go to anybody specifically at the department? Did How did you get that message back to the department or the people that were so concerned about you and uh, Patrick? Basically, I, I just told Billy's friends who were really at the forefront of, of you know, their care, the care for us. And I guess they began to realize we were okay. And so they backed off a little bit. The department, you know, I still had things that, that I needed to do for the department. I made a couple of speeches and I, which I did wholeheartedly because I wanted Billy's legacy to, to come through, you know, through Patrick and I. Right. I don't know if that makes any sense. Absolutely. But so I did a no, lot absolutely. of that. I did a lot of that for the for a long time, and then at some point, maybe a couple of years later, I decided, you know, I I'm not, I don't want to be known as the widow, quote unquote, for the rest of my life. So I started to separate from a lot of that stuff. Yeah, and I I remember when you went through that, and then you got back into it, which we, we can touch a little bit later on. One of the things that my wife at the time, one of the conversations we had. And we'd say in a joking manner, but the way the, the laws were back then, if I, w- I told my wife, if I was killed in the line of duty, she, I made her promise me one thing. I said, you make sure this department pays you for the rest of your life. So you, you find a new boyfriend, continue on with life. I want you to do that, but don't get married. Just live with the guy. Because back then... If you remarried, they, you lost your benefits. Right. So yeah. that was one of the things, and that was about the only conversation we had, and we it was very tongue-in-cheek, but it was deadly serious. So for me, on my point, looking in at what you've been through, the thought of, A, rebuilding your life, starting over, making a normal life as possible for you and Patrick, and then deciding, okay, I don't want to be the widow anymore, which I get, and I want to have a life of my own, sounds easier said than done oh it's it's incredibly difficult to do and in fact 
I did build a new relationship and remarried and lost my benefits. I did not um, know that. Yes. I knew now, that you remarried because, and I'll let you explain him. He was a coworker with me and Billy, and it's a, yes. a phenomenal guy. I mean, he's a great guy. Phenomenal guy. So I, I get that, but I didn't know you lost the benefits. I did lose. In the way it worked in Baltimore City at the time was that if the spouse remarries, she loses the benefits, and instead they revert to the children. Okay. So the check still came to my house to Patrick with me as the, I guess, the trustee. Oh, that's and I, could be used for his benefit. I feel like better social now. Social security. I yeah. feel better so, now because so, I was getting ready to go off the deep end. So, and I'm sure Kim, you wouldn't have it any other way. You know, the money that you were getting anyway was probably off of Patrick anyway. That's how we will we live for our that's children. What, I mean, you know, it paid for his schooling. It right. paid for you know, that's just the way it is. But a few years after that. We did have a very young survivor in Baltimore City who who then, I don't know, many years later, 10 years after her husband was killed, I guess, decided to remarry. And she was not even 20, I think, when her husband was killed. Yeah, I do so remember we were all Yeah. So we all kind of adopted her. And when it came time for her to take the next step and to remarry, a friend of ours who, Gary McElhinney, who at the time was the president of our local FOP lodge, undertook the task of getting the benefits requirements changed. And so all of the survivors up to that point joined with him. We managed to petition City Hall and the mayor and managed to get it changed so that the survivors still do not lose their benefits Excellent. when they remarry. Is that when you started getting active back in the police family during the time frame? I did. Okay. I, I did. Because right now, Kim, I can tell you, is actively involved and employed with FOP Lodge Number 3, which I've been a member of since 1980. And right. so I know you're very, very active. And when you said you are uh, you can be a very determined woman, I think that was an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> that, my husband now will tell you that. Yes, I'm sure. Yeah. How do people treat you now? People you meet in the department or retirees or people that work with Billy, how are they now? Well, they're, they're very different. There are still some. I mean, I can still feel when I meet people the first time and they realize who I am or somebody introduces me as, you know, uh, lost her husband, Billy Martin, line of duty. I can still see on there. There are some people that still have a terrible time, but because I've been so involved, I don't, People don't really even, I don't even think I'm regarded as a survivor anymore for the most part. I'm just, I feel like I'm still me a member, I'm, I'm just a member of the family. And that's how you want to be, that's how you want to feel and people to feel about you is that, unfortunately, there's a tragedy that happened, but for those that are living, life does go on. And uh, well, Right. And I knew that I still had work to do. I knew that there were things that I could do to support the law enforcement community but I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable doing it as, as a survivor. So I found other ways to do it. You know, I got very, very close to the FOP and have managed through the years off and on to do a lot of good work with them. So that, that's really, that's my pride at this point. So now we've got the other situation. I mean, life's been very good for the last few years. I have been blessed, Jay. Absolutely I say that and people look at me and say, how could you possibly do that? I was just going to say, say that. that a lot of people listening 
uh, will well, feel that way. It, yeah. 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 So please God elaborate. God has given me an amazing life. Like everybody else's life, there's sadness and there's sorrow and there's goodness. I was blessed with my, my second husband, my current husband, for all of these years. I did not know him when he was working with Billy and Jay. I just knew his name, but he was just a guy in the squad. He was a quiet um, guy back then. It's, it, he didn't talk quiet. a whole lot. Very quiet guy, very thoughtful. I got a call, I guess, right before Christmas. This is a this is a strange story, but I but I'll share it with you. I Billy was into in Baltimore. We have a tradition in at Christmas time of train gardens. Mm-hmm. Train gardens are huge model train gardens, and Billy was always very much into them and wanted to do a train garden in our house for Patrick when he got older. And the story is that he was working with my current husband Paul Diachilla one night. The I guess it must have been the Christmas before he died, and he said to Paul, who was who built train gardens, "What? How old do you think Patrick should be before I do this? When will he be old enough to appreciate it?" And Paul said, "Well, you know, I probably wouldn't do it until he turned three. So lo and behold, Patrick turns three in June. Billy died in October, and Paul called me right before Christmas and said, "I have a present for Patrick. Do you mind if I bring it over?" And if that, at that point, I was like, you know, I'm like the police officers, the police, you know, it's Christmas. You guys are great, but I need a little bit of space. So I said, well, after Christmas. So Christmas was over. He called again, and I said, sure, bring it over. And lo and behold, it was a train garden. Wow. That he had remembered the conversation that he had with Billy and brought the train garden for Patrick. Please tell Paul and I said it hello. all up in my house. The, the, he's such a great guy. And I never would have imagined him doing that. That's one of the things when you work with someone in police work, you get to know them very well. But there's a whole side of us that we don't know. I never, ever would have imagined right. that Paul would have been into building train gardens. Never. I See? And we, uh, luckily, people are able to keep some things about themselves secret. It's hard. Um, it's hard. It is hard. For those, it is hard I, when you're working. Uh, Kim, can you explain to us what a train garden is? Because I know Jay knows, but I have, I'm clueless. You know, it, it's, I don't even, it's, it's a, there are big, in Baltimore at Christmas time, usually starts right after Thanksgiving. You can go to local um, fire stations, especially shopping malls, and they'll have these little miniature villages and or and or cities with trains running through them and around them and you know christmas scenes and just it's like almost like a little fairy village but based around a train yeah with kids ice skating little figurines of kids ice skating and people do them in their homes around their christmas trees or actually we've known people that have had old let's say pool tables in their house and they set the whole thing up on top of the pool tables. It's a very big thing in Baltimore. There's, as a matter of fact, old bakeries and and, uh, I think it was Burgers, the cookie place, they would have the the, the chocolates and and they'd have their train garden set up and it'd be an attraction for people to to bring their kids, go there and buy some candy and watch the trains. It was very nostalgic thing. See all the little scenes and the, you know, the little tiny Christmas trees and the little village and really very, very charming tradition in Baltimore. And that's what Billy wanted Patrick to have, obviously a smaller version in our house 
he died before he could do that, so Paul did it for him. That's an excellent story. And that's how Paul and I finally met. That's an excellent story, and I cannot wait to, to see you guys and, and hear more details about that. Now, let's talk about Patrick. Uh, he went on through school, went to college, graduated college, and he was studying to do what? Well, he graduated um, from college with a major in athletic training, went on to West Virginia University and got a master's degree in athletic training, and then came back to Baltimore I guess uh, maybe 2011, I'm not really sure, 2012, and went to work for a local orthopedic surgeon as a physician extender, providing care for patients. And he did that for about two years, and then the 25th anniversary of Billy's death came around, and he heard about the Police Unity Tour, which is a, I guess they're, it's a national organization. Yes. yeah. Um, with chapters all over the country, and they raised money for the police memorial by riding bikes various distances into D.C. for the police memorial every year. And Patrick heard about that and decided since it was the 25th anniversary that he wanted to do that in honor of his father. So we hooked him up with some people from the FOP who were doing it, friends friends of mine, friends of Paul's, friends of Billy's, and he did it and spent five days with a group from the Baltimore City Police Department and came home after and said, Mom, I'm going to join the Baltimore City Police Department. They ruined them. <laughs> they, they, I, they, we rub off on each other. It's like, oh, my goodness. He was done. How'd you feel was, about that, Kim? Well, you know, I had spent many years. I have to be very honest with you and tell you that many times in Patrick's life, he would say to me, I'm going to be a police officer when I grow up. And his mother's response always was over my dead body. So he grew up knowing that that was just, you just don't, (laughs) that's not a real thing. It's not going to happen. And so when he came to me and said that, I realized, you know, he was like, I guess, 27 at the time. He's not my little boy anymore. I can't control his life. I have to let him do what he wants to do. And so he did. And he is now about to complete, well, two and a half years as a Baltimore City police officer. And now he wants to go back to work for the doctor, correct? No. (laughs) No. I should be so lucky. Your lips to God's ears, Robert. When he was going to the academy and graduating, we talked. I I think it was on instant message. And I said to you, I'm blown away by this because he was given his father's badge. Which, when you're killing a lot of duty in Baltimore, your badge is retired. It's never issued yes. again. So, he's wearing his father's badge. And you said, God took Billy, but he would not allow that to happen again. That's exactly right. Or something right. along those terms. That was how I, that's how I am still able to deal with it. Um, I, I say to myself, and I believe this with all that I am, that God took Billy, but he would never do it to me again. And so I, I have faith that Patrick goes to work every day and will come home at the end of his shift as he should. Good. And where is he working? He is now, he's still in the Northern District. He was assigned to the Northern District of Baltimore City upon graduation, and he's still there. You know, the department's got issues. We, anybody who follows the news knows that. But it's still, you know, a great job. 
for the for the right person. Yeah. And apparently he's the right person because he loves it. Well, he comes from good stock. Between you you and Billy, he's got uh, all the good stuff. And uh, I, I, I'm proud of him. And last time I saw him was around a funeral. So he oh, was wow. a, he was a, a baby. He was a little so, tiny like, boy. So like you walking down the street in Baltimore right now, he could well, possibly it, arrest you. He could, but <laughs> I would know who he was because he looked so much like his dad. Catch. He is the spitting image of his dad. Oh, um, yeah. People tell him that all the time. He's 31 years old, getting married next year. Oh, is he? So he, he yes, he just got engaged to a lovely woman, and they're getting married next August. So we're we're very proud. Oh, We're very proud, and I that's still exciting. believe that. That's exciting news. Exciting news. Uh, it's uh, life going full circle. As it should, as it's meant to. And who got to pin Patrick? Um, actually, the commissioner did, um, but I was there, obviously, to see it, Correct. and it was quite an emotional, quite an emotional moment. He actually is wearing his father's badge. Right. Um, I, I would love uh, to get that picture so some of our followers... Our video. Uh, I think you have video that, don't you? I do. I, if I don't, I can get it. Okay. I could definitely get it. Oh, from, we'd yeah, love to... Yeah, we would really love and be honored to put that on our website and Facebook pages and social media. I will definitely do that because I know that uh, the department has it, but I, but there, it was also very heavily covered by the media um, as, just because it was such a good good piece of news you know he came out of the department came out of the academy he was in the academy during the riots yeah um and so he came out shortly after and it was just something that was very touching and heartwarming um in terms of pr for the police department so i can definitely get you that now let's go in a different direction if you're going to have a conversation with a spouses of police officers and or police officers right now regardless of where they work, what would be the first thing you would tell them about the job and about how to live your life and prepare for what might, could possibly happen? I think I would tell them what I always told myself. And I guess this is how I've always dealt with it this way. When Billy was alive and also now with Patrick, it's a job. It is a job like anybody else's job. Granted, There are dangers involved, but as a spouse, as a family member, you can't dwell on that because if you do, it'll kill you. So when Billy got up every day and went to work, it was as though he was an accountant going to his office for me. Because if I thought to myself, oh, my God, you know, he's leaving to go to work and he may not be, I never would have survived. So I had to treat it as though it was anybody else's regular nine-to-five you know, paycheck job. And I think my advice, especially to spouses, is you don't dwell on the negativity. Because at the end of the day, it's a very noble profession. They're doing a great thing. And if he's meant to come home, he'll come home. Again, you got me so I can't speak. Um, I just want to thank you very personally as someone we've known each other for a very long time. Yes. That That thank you so very much for coming on the show and talking to us. And I, I'm certain that your experience and how you shared it so eloquently is going to reach other people that A, might go through this and are worried about it, but B, there's there's officers who were like me felt guilty for a very long time, and there's also spouses that are survivors and they feel alone. And I think that your words and your experience 
can have a tremendous impact for them. So I want to thank you very much. Well, I thank you for inviting me. I, I hope that that's the case. I mean, I've, I've definitely felt as though part of what I've been supposed to do since Billy's death was to help people as much as I could in the same circumstances. So I appreciate this opportunity to try to do that. And please also pass a word on, because I know that you do talk to other people, survivors of VF, someone else, they want to come on, they want to talk to us. We'd love to have them as a guest. I will absolutely do that. Thanks, Kim Abato Diachilla. Thanks so much. And tell Paul I said hello. I will. Thanks, guys. Bye, Robert. Bye, Kim. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So, Robert, honestly, what do you think of Kim Abato Diachilla? Uh, she's a, a trooper. Um, definitely one one strong person. I yeah, don't even, she is. I don't know why, uh, or she probably could get more involved and do anything and be successful at it. And the amazing thing about talking with Kim, a survivor, of her her husband, first husband, police officer, William, we call him Billy Martin, killing line of duty, October 10th, 1989, Baltimore Police Department. The amazing thing about her is she really, truly did carry herself in a way where she said, this is an incredible experience for the department and the members of the department, and they need my help. Every time I talk to Kim from the day that Billy was killed, I found out she's always helped me far more than I could have helped her. And how how do you get that mindset when your your special someone, your significant other, gets killed in the line of duty, taken away from you? Your life is changed like like we've never experienced. That we, me, and you have never experienced that, and have that presence of mind to be that strength for the Baltimore family. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know. know. How to... I, I don't know, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, this happened October 10th, 1989. Here we are, this is 2017, and I still get emotional when I talk about it. I still get upset. I still get angry. Uh, those feelings are still right below the surface. And the guys he was working with, the guys in my squad, because I, I left got transferred to another district, were outstanding police. You know, the, the other officer was with them that wound up getting a gunfight with the guy who killed Billy. It was named Herman Brooks. A phenomenal guy. I know this tore all of them up immensely because we never thought that that could happen. You knew it could, but we never thought deep down that would happen A to me or B to anybody that I, that I know personally and work with closely. I mean, it's a defense mechanism, you know? Absolutely. It's uh, the way I get through uh, my career. And uh, she... I never, never think it's going to happen to you. But in light of the situation, that type of assassination, it was, I mean, yes, I wasn't emotionally involved like you were, but there's nothing anybody can do. Somebody yeah. shoots you from behind like that. You know, there's no second guessing. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing. And it's to not do. a situation where you say, well, you know, maybe he, he should have done this, he should have done that. It, it wasn't like that at all. And it's just a clear cut example of yet another situation where a police officer with integrity and, and courage goes and handles what appears to be a routine call for service, just some juveniles that are being delinquent, smoking pot, and you don't expect anything like that to happen, like that situation like that. That's what separates our job and our chosen profession than all others. And then from that moment on, so many lives have changed, not just mine, not just all the guys in the squad, the, the women in the squad, but, but Kim's, Paul's, Patrick's, so many people were affected. I'm glad that we, we got someone on to talk about this side of the story. Well, hopefully it'll uh, encourage others 
Uh, not everybody handles things the same way. Some people might have a different way that they dealt with a situation where a loved one was killed in the line of duty, and we'd certainly be honored to have them on the show Absolutely. as well. We'd love to have that. Uh, and I know there's a very strong survivors network that do a lot of support work with each other. And uh, that organization, COPS, I became a member of it right after this happened. And uh, I'm still a member. I, I'm not active. But again, like Robert said, like you said, we are available not just for police officers active and retired, but also their spouses as well and survivors. If you want to come on and talk about your experience, we would love to have you. We would, and it would be an honor uh, to speak with someone regardless of where they are. Absolutely. No matter how you dealt with it or how you got through it and you're still here talking about it, then we want to hear from you. I don't think there is a classy way to handle it or uh, an ideal way to handle it. It's We all handle these things our own way, and there are times where I'll be honest with you, where I was just a sobbing wreck. And other times where you can be stoic about it. And sometimes it's like intermixed. Right. And it comes from nowhere. I could be the gym working out. And a guy with red hair that looks similar to him could see him in, in a flash of memory of my mind. And all of a sudden you get that, that um, right. the sadness that comes up, but it goes away. Well, I'll say this in closing. I'm honored that... We have people like Kim on the show because not only do we hear their story, but we also get to speak about your friend and a fallen brother, Billy. If we didn't do this, it, it, people wouldn't be talking about it or people wouldn't even know about him. Right. So if you want to be a guest, you want to come on the show and talk about it, we'd love to have you. If you want to send a topic or solution, I have another guy I'm going to call, a guy I went to the academy class with who, whose son was a Baltimore County officer was coming to the line of duty. I'm going to contact him. Because he was a police retired sergeant and his son was killed. So that's another perspective that we don't get to hear about and hopefully we'll have him on as soon too. But if you want to come on the show, we would love to have you. Uh, the spouses are more than welcome. All you have to do is contact us. That's it. Um, we're very easily uh, through our emails, which is Jay at Law Enforcement Today, Robert at Law Enforcement Today. You can reach us on our website or on our Facebook or Twitter page. Make sure you tell your friends about our podcast show. Uh, a lot of people have been asking me, hey, how do I listen to your show? Um, I've got a lot of uh, brother officers still on the job right now that are listening in between calls now that we're, you know they could stop and, and pause way, and play it. It's a good point you brought up. If you're just tuning in now, you can go back to listen to episode number one. That's correct. That's so the beautiful it's thing. Up there. That's the beautiful thing what we're doing. And this show will definitely uh, stamp uh, Billy's foundation back into the brotherhood in the in 2017 yeah, many many years have gone by uh and again you don't have to be here in florida to be a guest we'll accommodate you with our radio studios you can call from anywhere so since you don't have a closing line you've given you, you up bring, on that you bring that up all the time we're not doing that anymore so it's i can i can take us out of here yeah well i can do it i, I just want to say on behalf of myself robert greenberg and my partner john j wiley god i almost blew that one huh <laughs> see ya yeah.